This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelore. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Hello, Raw Beauty crew. I asked you in my DMs the other day what you wanted more information on, and there were two key areas, one of which was anxiety, anxiety relief, anxiety reduction, anxiety, get this, the F out of my body. And so I am thrilled to have today's guest joining me. Dr. Russ Kennedy is a physician, neuroscientist, somatic intuitive, certified yoga instructor, meditation teacher, and this part, I love this part, a professional stand-up comedian who struggled with crippling anxiety for decades. He's finally healed and he has so many tools, so much wisdom that he shares on his Instagram page, The Anxiety MD. I'll make sure that I link to that down below. And we have him here on the show. I'm so excited to learn from him and of course, to deliver you tools, tips, and tricks that you can use at home to support your your own healing. Dr. Ross Kennedy, thank you for joining us. Hey, Aaron, nice to be here. I'm so curious because you've obviously accomplished so much in your life so far, and you've done it with anxiety along for the ride. Yeah. I often hear from people that they almost fear in some way losing their edge, losing their anxiety yeah. because it has driven them to accomplish or to be successful. And so I would love to hear a little bit about your story. Like, how did anxiety present? How did you become a physician with so much anxiety? All the things. Well, I used it. I used the energy of anxiety. I mean, that's the thing. When you're young and you have that anxiety, you can kind of channel it. But as you get into your 40s and 50s and you go through a divorce or two and that kind of stuff, it you know, it kind of kicks the crap out of you. So uh, as you get older, that coping mechanism that you had as a child, specifically, because most anxiety starts in childhood, of being hypervigilant and hyper-focused on things, even though anxiety seems like it, it's, it scatters you, there's an element of anxiety that provides energy that allows you to follow your dreams, your passions. And a lot of us anxious people were born sensitive and we have a lot of passion. We have a lot of, I don't know, artistic ability. People with anxiety typically are very intelligent because I think if you send someone to the thinking gym every day from the time they're four years old, after when you get to be 19 or 20, you get to be pretty darn good at thinking, right? So I think anxiety can be used as a as a pro for sure and it definitely affects us for sure but i think when we're younger we can handle the anxiety a lot more and channel it into things and i also think that we go into our heads as children because if we're in a powerless and helpless situation say we're being physically emotionally 
um, sexually abused on some level, or even less trauma than that, will still go into our heads because that trauma gets stored in our body. So we don't want to go down into feeling town. So we'd rather stay up in our heads and just ruminate because it's perceived, especially as the child part of us, as safer than going down into your body where all that old crap is stored. So that was a rather long introduction. But basically, I think we get traumatized as children. And if you're sensitive, it takes very little actually to traumatize you. That gets stored in your body. You avoid that trauma by going into your head and ruminating. And then you have to make the worries more and more severe to keep you in your head and avoid going down into your body. So it becomes a coping strategy. But over the course of time, that coping strategy of overthinking just wears you out. Mm. What was your trauma? Growing up with a schizophrenic father. So he was never abusive or violent or anything like that, but I would lose him. And in my younger days, you know, he was very attentive. He's one of the most intelligent people I've ever known. Uh, very good teacher. And just would I would lose him to psychosis. Like he would just vanish. And as a seven-year-old, when you see your dad kind of lose touch with reality or believe he's Jesus or whatever it is, it's really difficult, you know? So after he did that 5, 10, 15, 20 times, you know, I'm getting now 10, 15, 20 years old and watching him do that, I lose connection with him. Mm-hmm. And then I have, what's worse, I have this feeling like, okay, well, to love him isn't safe. To love isn't safe because when you love someone and you see them in so much pain and so much suffering, you kind of couple love with pain. Wow. And then, you know, Freud called it the repetition compulsion. So basically what you what was familiar to you in childhood, you will unconsciously replicate in your adulthood, right? So I replicated a lot of chaos in my early relationships and 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 on some level becoming a medical doctor was was kind of a chaotic experience for me because it was very highly anxiety provoking and it brought up all my old, you know, not good enough fears. But it was a place I could channel it. But one of the things about being a medical doctor is that you help other people with their trauma, which is kind of what I was doing with my father and my mother my whole life. So I just replicated what I was doing that was harming me, thinking it was helping me. Mm. And you were good at it. You naturally were gifted in it because you'd had a whole childhood to practice this skill. And you were most likely highly empathetic based on your experience and also genes and all of the things. So, okay, so you became a doctor and you were experiencing some anxiety. When you were noticing that anxiety, did you ever fear you would become like your father? Oh, yeah. I think that's the reason why I became anxious is because I knew there was a genetic component to schizophrenia and bipolar. So I thought, May, you know, maybe this is going to happen to me. I used to tell myself, if you get to 25 and it doesn't show up, because most schizophrenia will show up by 25. If you get 25, you're probably safe. And then when I got to 25 and I was okay, it was like, okay, when you get to 30, you're probably pretty safe. And then when I got to 35, when I got to 35, it was kind of like, okay, I think I pretty much dodged that bullet. But it caused me a tremendous amount of anxiety. And I think that played a huge role in my own kind of anxious temperament uh, in believing that I could show up like him because he, he suffered so much. Yeah. I think that's a common fear with anxiety. Will I completely lose it at some point? Mm -hmm. Will this ever go away? Is this who I am? This attachment to it? It holds so much space in our life. And so at what point did you start working on your anxiety? So I've been seeing psychiatrists since I was, I don't know, 15, 16, that kind of thing. I think I've probably seen 
10, 15 psychiatrists in my in my tenure as, as an anxious person. And then innumerable numbers of psychologists, EMDR, ACT, LMNOP, XYZ, anything. You know, I did <laughs> I did all of it. I did all of it. And a lot of it was really cognitive based, Aaron. So it helped in the short term, but it didn't really help in the long term. My wife, Cynthia, is also a somatic trauma therapist, and she's more versed in the somatic side than I am. But she says, said something to me the other day that was really interesting. She said, cognitive therapies appear to work initially. So changing your thought processes, changing the way that you talk to yourself, that appear to work initially, and they do, but they don't stick. You know, a lot of times, like a year later, I've seen people that said, I spent $6,000 on a CBT program last year and I was good for a couple of months and then it just crept right back. But then she said, so, but the somatic therapies, like going into your body, finding where the anxiety is in your body, seeing that anxiety as your younger wounded self, connecting with it, seeing it, hearing it, loving it, protecting it, that is what actually heals you long-term. But it takes a long time because you've had decades of experience where you have, you know, judged, abandoned, blamed, and shamed yourself, what I call jabs, for so many years, it's so hard to kind of flip that on its on it and try and find it in your body. Because I do believe the alarm is in our body, the body keeps the score. And that alarm in our body is our younger self. That's what's crying for our attention. And the adult in us kind of pushes that child away because the child holds our pain. And the child in us doesn't trust the adult in us because they've been around us for sometimes 50 years <laughs> and we haven't really made the effort to connect with them. So I believe that we heal by connecting the younger version of ourselves and the adult version of ourselves. And when we mix mind and body, because ultimately I believe anxiety is a separation of mind and body. We, li- we live in our heads and a separation of our adult selves, our present day adult selves, with our yesterday's child self. Mm. So the split between those two creates an incredible amount of alarm in our system. And then when we're children, because we can't blame our parents, we blame ourselves. There's a great saying that says, when you abuse, neglect, or abandon a child, the child doesn't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves. And that's the start of the split. And when we split from ourselves as children, and we start judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming, it becomes a habit. And then we can't actually join together because we're so used to judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming that it becomes a coping strategy. Mm. Okay, there's so much, obviously, to dig into what you just said there and so much that resonated with me um, as somebody who's had a lifelong experience with anxiety that took many different forms, including an eating disorder, postpartum anxiety, intrusive thoughts, you name it, have felt it, OCD, all the things. So the most healing experience that I had started around age 25. And I talk about the fact that I'd at this point been in an inpatient program in the hospital for three months for the eating disorder. I'd worked with different counselors, nutritionists, all of the things. And I started working with a coach, a life coach, and she did somatic healing work. And it was the first time I was able only with her support to come into the body and to start to identify those areas that were holding so much. Yeah. I would cry and cry and cry, and then like a wave crashing over, you know, it would intensify and then dissipate. And the healing effect was so profound. My binge eating stopped, like over the course of two months. The anxiety reduced. It was so, so powerful. And then it also allowed me to then start to look at some of the belief patterns, my reaction to things, 
from a less triggered place. Mm. So coming into the body allows you, to, I, in my experience, to do that more cognitive work from a more rational place versus being triggered and activated. Yeah. And I can tell you why neurologically, if you want yeah, to Yeah, please. So basically, when we get into survival physiology, when we create epinephrine, norepinephrine in the brain, and cortisol in our system, we shut off the prefrontal and premotor areas of our brain. Those are the rational parts of our brain. So not only do we make more threat, because that's what the brain does, it's a meaning-making, make-sense machine. When we feel alarmed, we create threat in our mind to, make, to explain it. But we also shut off the part of our brain that would rationally tell us these worries are nothing to worry about. So we get more threat, and then we actually believe the threat. And that's what starts the cycle. That's what starts the inability to get out of it yourself because you've shut off the part of your rational brain that would actually help you move into healing. So you go into your emotional brain and you don't, you don't get out of it. So you get this anxiety in your mind, these warnings, what ifs, and worst case scenarios. Then you believe them. Then your body takes that and creates even more alarm which paralyzes your ability to think even more, creates more threat, which creates even more alarm. So you get into this alarm-anxiety cycle, alarm in the body, anxiety in the mind. And we don't realize that it's a two-pronged attack that kills us. So it's the, it's the alarm in our body that's the ultimate source of our anxiety. The mind is just a reflector. The mind is a meaning-making, make-sense machine. So this process called interoception from polyvagal theory, the brain is always reading the internal and external environment. So through this process of interoception, the mind is always reading the body. So if, if it picks up this alarm, this old trauma that could be from anything in our past, it has, to, it has to do something with it, especially that left hemisphere. It wants to know. So it will make up a reason why you feel bad. And then you will, make, you will believe that reason because you made it up. And then it just the cycle just continues. And then you don't have the rational ability to see... This is just me making it up. And this is why you can go back the next day and go, why did I get so upset about that? Like that is really because the next day your body's out of alarm, your prefrontal cortex has come back so you can see rationally. But when you're in it, the, the unfortunate part of our human wiring is that it shuts off the very part of our brain that we need to bring ourselves out of it. Okay, well, this is a great point because oftentimes when people are experiencing a lot of anxiety, they want to try and think themselves out of it, totally. like solve the problem, figure out what the threat is. Let's continue looping down the story that I'm creating. And I believe that the first step is always to come back to the body and to mm -hmm. address that alarm, as you call it, or the dysregulated nervous system. So I'm curious for you, first of all, do you find that to be the first step? And second of all, yes. what do you do to get into your body? Yeah. Well, I have this thing in my book called ABCs. So A is awareness. So what goes on in your body when you start getting anxious? We all know what happens in our minds. Like our minds are compulsive, meaning-making machines. So it is always trying to create worry. So we know that. So what happens is the awareness of, okay, this is what my body feels like when my brain starts going 100 miles an hour. And the next part, the A is awareness, the B is body and breath. So we get into our body, get into our breath, go downstairs, because you can't think your way out of a feeling problem. 
but our brains will tell us that we can. Our brains are always like in the corner going, hey, think more, you'll get out of this. Think more, think more. And it just leads to more of the problem because if anxiety is a problem of excessive thinking and rumination, more thinking is not going to help you. But we don't we don't know that. Like we we our brains have been paralyzed, so we have this feeling like, okay, well, I'll just think my way out of it. So that's B. So A is awareness. This is how I feel when I start worrying. I go into your body instead of your mind. Your mind is not going to give you any solutions. It will tell you that it will, but it won't. Then go into your body, go into your breath, smell an essential oil. The great thing about essential oil is it goes right into the rhinencephalon, which is basically the smell brain, which is the emotional part of our brain. It's the only, smell is the only sense that doesn't get pre-programmed by the thalamus, where thalamus is a big nucleus in the brain that's kind of like the central switchboard. Sight, touch, everything else, every one of our senses goes through the thalamus and gets pre-processed, but the smell goes right into the emotional part of our brain. So go into that. So awareness, then your body, your breath, smell, whatever brings you into that present moment awareness, and then a compassionate connection to the child in you. So that alarm in your system, you know, we, I, when I work with people, I find it. A lot of people, it's in their solar plexus. That's where it is with me. Chest, heart, throat. Funnily enough, I see w- women mostly. I think women are probably 75% of my, my clients. And a lot of women had narcissistic or demanding mothers. And often, it's amazing how often their alarm is in their throat. You know, it's like fifth chakra stuff. Like they, they couldn't express to their mother what they wanted to say. And that alarm, that energy is still trapped there. So I say, put your hand over that. Find that alarm, find that trapped energy in your throat and just sort of see if you can find that younger version of you because that's where she is. And put your hand over it and see if you can connect with her. So those, that's the ABC. So awareness, how does anxiety show up with me? Then instead of staying in your head, going into your body and your breath, and then see compassionate connection to that child. And the alarm will show you where that child is in your body. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Robbie Detox. Rules and restrictions may apply. 
This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all faced, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you over. Well, let's talk about some of the tools and strategies that we can use to speak to those parts of the brain. Like what do, what language do they understand? We've talked about the uh, breath. We've touched on somatic healing. I know for me, cold water is incredibly Mm -hmm. effective running it over my hands or doing the full plunge situation that we're seeing all over right now. What is supportive for you and your clients? Well, it's it varies. You know, everybody has their kind of favorite. But, you know, when you mentioned plunge there, it's really important because I think it's learning to tolerate uncertainty and learning to tolerate emotional and to some extent physical pain. Because when we're children, it's so abhorrent to have pain, especially if we don't have a parent that can soothe us. So when we go into an ice bath or we go or we put our face in cold, cold water, but we consciously do that. So that's why I tell people when you get a bowl of of ice and you're going to put your hand and your face in it, like make the conscious choice and tell yourself, I am doing this consciously. I am doing this for me. Because when we were children, a lot of times we get put into situations where it was painful, but we had no choice and we didn't put ourselves in it. So when you put yourself into a place of pain, the way you resolve that in your system is actually very healing to all parts of you. So it's, it's having control over the pain. When you were younger, you had no control over the pain. But when you're older, you can actually say, I'm going to put myself in this ice bath. I'm going to stay in the sauna for another five minutes. You can do this because it's your choice and you're consciously making the choice. And it's the old like Viktor Frankl thing about, you know, in between stimulus and response, there's a space. And the more space you create, the more choice you have. And the more choice you have, the more your brain, he doesn't say this, but I added it on there, the more your brain can adapt to something that you actually put yourself into. If you are the victim of something, it's very difficult to get the healing parts of your brain and body online if you're a victim. It's virtually impossible. Yeah. For me, the cold plunging is twofold. One, we know that it stimulates the vagus nerve, which sends a signal mm-hmm. to the to the brain saying that everything's all good. So I physically notice a huge shift. I'd, all I can say is I'll feel dysregulated. I'll feel like I'm not breathing deep anymore. I feel like there's a bit of electricity in my body. I'm having a hard time sitting down. I'm more snippy at my husband. Like all of these things to me signal that my body is slightly dysregulated. There's a bit of anxiety there. So I noticed that I just feel so much more grounded. The other thing was when I started doing the cold showers, 
it just highlighted the inner dialogue that occurred within my brain when I was moving into a difficult situation. And here I am, somebody who has big goals and lofty dreams. You've got to be comfortable being outside of your comfort zone. And so I really looked at it like going to the gym and stepping into a boxing ring where I was training my mind and that anxious mind to... (laughs) shut the F up for a second. And that I am the boss. I know this is good for my body. It's not going to kill me. Anyone can stay in that water for 30 seconds and I'm just going to do it. And it became easier and easier. And that voice, that inner voice got softer and quieter. But that it was just the exact same voice that would show up in work, in marriage, in parenting. And I I needed that voice to settle down (laughs) because it was getting in the way. Yeah. But what we were talking about earlier on is when you were younger, you probably used that voice to energize you and move you forward. Because clearly you do have goals, you are directed. Like, But it's just really knowing yourself. If you look at the vagus nerve, 80% of the vagus nerve uh, is afferent, which means that it goes from the body to the brain. Only 20% of the vagus nerve actually has effects on the heart, the lungs, whatever. It's mostly a sensory nerve. So it kind of goes back to the brain and it says, look, you're doing okay. So initially, when you go into a cold plunge, the vagus nerve goes a bit nuts. It's like, hey, hey, hey. But after a while, you kind of see, okay, my, my sympathetic nervous system can go fired right up, and then I can bring it down. And I, I used to play this game with my daughter, Leandro, when I was in med school, and she was like four. And she would run into the room and she would yell out, sea monster. And me being the aforementioned sea monster would jump up and chase the damsel around the house <laughs> and make all sorts of very, very scary noises. And she would freak out and scream and, and, and laugh, but she's really, a, you know, I scared her. And then 10 minutes later or five minutes later, I'd have her on the couch. We'd have a nice cuddle. So what I was doing, and I didn't know it back then, but I was showing her, look, we can fire your sympathetic fight or flight nervous system through the roof. But within five minutes, I can bring you right back down to a regulated parasympathetic state. Because typically what happens with us anxious people when we have trauma is that we go up high into the sympathetic fight or flight nervous system, but we only come down very, very, very slowly. And if anything at all, happens when we're coming down, we'll go right back up again. So what I was teaching her is that we can fire you into sympathetic, but you know, five minutes later, you can be right back down into sympathetic or parasympathetic and relaxing again, which as children, 90% of us didn't get. Right. There was just this heightened stress state. Yeah. And we would stay there. And I think, you know, us sensitive people just have a more profound reaction to epinephrine, to adrenaline. And it comes up in us and it stays up for a long time. And that's why it's so hard for us to kind of relax. And it's so hard for us to regain that part of our brain, that rational premotor prefrontal cortex that would allow us to kind of go, hey, let's just get into our body. Let's just breathe here. You know, let's, let's talk to the younger version of ourselves and say, hey, I know you're upset. I know this is troubling for you. I know this is something that just basically goes against your old fears. But we can do this together because the amygdala has no sense of time. So when we get traumatized, we go right back to the time, the age we were when we got traumatized. So if you got traumatized by bitten by a dog when you're four and you see a dog coming down the street, part of you turns into a four-year-old. But we don't realize that we're a four-year-old. We think we're an adult, but we're not. So that's, you know, and all these things make it, make anxiety really hard to treat. 
And it really comes down to how can I find my alarm in my body and treat that as my younger self and treat and treat her with compassion and love and connection. Because most of us who are goal-directed and type A personalities turn that energy into going forward as opposed to going inward. Mm, I love that. One of the things that I've heard, I can't remember who said it, but this idea of being successful despite the anxiety and not stating that it's because of the anxiety, basically. You're not successful because of the anxiety. You're successful despite the anxiety. And that, for me, was really good to hear, to to have that perspective shift that I can have a grounded baseline and still be successful. Yeah. And I think, you know, our ultimate success is being able to to sort of put reins around that anxiety and use it to our benefit, you know, and see it. It's not the enemy. It's, it's far from it. It's basically the younger version of yourself holding their hands up, asking you to sort of see them, hear them, love them, and protect them. And if we keep pushing them away, yeah, we'll have this tremendous rush of energy in our system that we can use in our 20s and 30s, but that stops being effective when we get into our 40s and 50s and beyond because... You know, my um, mentor in developmental psychology, Gordon Newfeld, over in Vancouver, used to say, you know, at what cost? Like, that's what he would say. Like, so, but it is true, you know, at what cost are we creating to ourselves when we don't connect with that younger version of ourselves? And I, as sometimes as a medical doctor and a neuroscientist and all that kind of stuff, I want to have a seizure because it sounds so woo, like it sounds so ethereal. But I went through, like I said, every type of therapy for 30 plus years. And the only time I really got some relief was somatic therapy, internal family systems, and I hate to say this, but psychedelics. But psychedelics actually didn't help me directly. They helped showed me that my anxiety had more to do with my, my body than my brain. And it took me about two years to recover from psychedelics. So I don't recommend psychedelics typically for people with anxiety unless they've done a year of somatic work or a year of internal family systems work. You know, get the baseline first. If that fixes you, great. If you need something beyond that, then consider psychedelics. I don't like psychedelics as kind of first-line therapy. I think in our society, we've got this idea that I want shortcuts. And sometimes, you know, it can cause more problems than it's worth. Like I do have people that psychedelics really screwed them up for two or three years. So it's not a panacea. Mm. What kind of psychedelic did you try or psychedelics? Uh, LSD was my first one because I had a friend who was a plant medicine specialist and he knew everything about plants, not just psychedelics. Like you go for a walk with him and he'll go, well, that's a arugula spiralata or whatever it is. It's good for wounds. You just rub it on your wounds. It's like, yeah, fine, Todd. You know, and then so LSD was the first one. And I write in my book how LSD showed me that my alarm was actually in my solar plexus and that was the real cause of my anxiety. Um, Ayahuasca, I did a couple of times. Totally frightening. You know, would never do it again psilocybin, microdose, and sort of sometimes heroic dose, just to see. You know, I, I didn't do it because I wanted to get high. I wanted to, to examine my anxious mind from the inside. And it certainly did that, you know. And, but, it, but it said, like, for two years after, I wasn't, I wasn't quite right. Mm, so interesting. I, I actually haven't talked about this on the show at all. Yeah. But I have done ketamine therapy. Okay. And I did it... At the end of last year, specifically for anxiety, I went to see a woman who was highly recommended, and she 
had done mushroom journeys or psilocybin journeys with right. a number of people who I trust, people as well in my healing and wellness circle. When I met with her immediately, she was like, psilocybin's not for you. We're going to do ketamine, which I am not somebody who has done drugs recreationally sure. or anything because sure. I'm more anxious. I've I yeah. mean, I've smoked weed once and I was like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable yes. in my body. For me, the experience was really profound. I did the what's recommended as like their treatment dose and I went three times and it had a huge impact. I mean, the anxiety that was still left in my body that I was, I've, I'd been doing all the other things was gone it was back after three months, like just low levels of anxiety we're talking right. about now, but it really was effective. I haven't talked on, about it on the show because I really believe we're in the early days of yes. this type of use of medicine, of understanding who it's beneficial for at what point in the treatment journey. I'm so curious. I have done as everyone listening to the show knows, 15 years of this work in all different mm -hmm. ways, shapes, and forms. And so I, too, would not recommend it for anybody and just will share my own personal experience. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah, there's a big stigma. Like whenever I, whenever I publish something on Instagram about LSD, I get all this stuff like, you know, you're an LSD addict. And it's like, I did it 10 years ago. I haven't done it since. I don't know if that makes me an LSD addict no. or whatever. <laughs> but there's such, there's such a stigma towards it. And I think properly used... But you're right, it's in its infancy for sure. But properly used, it will actually help us escape our ego. Because if you look at uh, functional MRI scanners of people who are on psychedelics, it paralyzes the part of our brain called the default mode network, which is kind of in the frontal part of our, which maybe holds our ego, maybe holds the sort of that self-reproach, that shame, that negativity. So when it paralyzes the shame and the negativity, you are exposed to who you really are which for some people is is a very profound experience and, and you feel one with everything. Because if you look at the way that psychedelics work is that they kind of blur the boundary between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind and you and other. Mm -hmm. So that's why people say, I, I blended with the trees. Like I felt because their default mode network was completely paralyzed, so was their ego. And the ego is the home of judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. So if it paralyzes that sort of internal sense of jabs that you have, you can start seeing yourself without all that negative you know, daily inner critic self-talk and see what a wonderful, you know, image you are, which is really hard for people. You know, when they, when you've, when you've had a negative view of yourself for your whole life, it's very difficult. And that's why some people on psychedelics find it just the most amazing experience because it's peaceful, it's calm, that overprotective negative voice is gone for a while and then mm -hmm. it comes back again. But then your ego, once once you're out of the psychedelic, your ego will tend to drag you back to your old coping strategies. Mm. So typically after a year, you know, you'll kind of get pulled back into that same kind of thing if you don't continue to do the work. Yeah, if you don't have those practices to mm -hmm. help continue to keep you grounded. I have a lot of mamas who listen to this show and yep. a lot of mamas who have anxious kiddos, which I think is one of the most <laughs> stressful things that totally. a parent can navigate is a child who is, is struggling with anxiety or depression, 
negative body image. I mean, all of these things are very linked. So I would love to take a second to chat about how we support our kids and their mental health and well-being. Where would we begin? Well, there's a process I learned from Gordon Neufeld called bridging. Bridging is when you drop your child off at school or they're leaving or even sometimes when they're going to bed and you say, you know, I really look forward to making you banana pancakes tomorrow morning when you wake up. You're always bridging the next connection. So when you drop them off at school, it's not it's not just have a nice day at school. It's like, I'm really looking forward. I'll be right back here at 3.30. I'm really looking forward to you and I going over to the sporting goods store and looking at those baseball bats you wanted to look at. Like you're always letting them know in the back of their mind that there's another connection coming. You never just sort of say, see you later, have a good time. And even, you know, even at bedtime, like it's so important, especially for younger kids, because Bedtime is a, is a huge separation for little kids. So you tell them, look, tomorrow morning, we're going to get up, you know, we're going to get your favorite PJs or we're going to get your favorite clothes, you know, we're going to put them out now and then I'm going to help you wear them. So the more you can make that visceral to them, the more they know that the, the next connection is not only set, but there's things to do in the next connection, it automatically kind of soothes them. The other thing is touch. I don't think we touch our kids enough. You know, I think it's really important. Some families, it's hard to give what you didn't get as a, as a child yourself. So if you didn't get a lot of touch and affection as a child yourself, it's kind of hard to give it to your child. So, but make the academic exercise to do that. I love yous. A lot of families have a hard time with that three little word phrase because they didn't get it themselves. They're uncomfortable with it. But it's really important that that child knows. Kids' nervous systems need that. The other thing about children is we have this um, something in our brains and body called the social engagement system. So eye contact, tone of voice, prosody of voice, body language, facial expression. That's what matures the social engagement system. And the social engagement system is actually what allows us to soothe other people. And it also allows us to soothe ourselves. So now, because our kids are getting limited facial contact, you know, with other kids, COVID was, of course, horrible for this. But even in our families, people aren't eating around the table anymore. There's a whole bunch of things. So we need face-to-face interactions to mature this social engagement system. And we're not getting it. So we're getting this face-to-screen, which is not the same. It doesn't create that same connection. And the kids, the last thing on top of that is there's no boredom anymore. There's no ability for our kids to handle negative emotion because as soon as they feel boredom, or anger or frustration, they go into their phone. So they get this bypass. So when when I was younger, if you were bored, you were freaking bored and you had to deal with it. Yeah. You had to find a way out of it. But that's not doesn't happen anymore because the kids have their screens. So when they go off to university or whatever, that stops working. That looking at your screen stops working. So, you know, when you have your kids around the table, like play a little game, like What's my face doing? Am I happy? Am I sad? Am I frustrated? Like really try and get them into the emotion using your face because we have this part of our brain that's devoted specifically to faces and we're not getting enough face-to-face contact and we need face-to-face contact, good and bad. Like like when someone's angry with you, when someone's depressed, when someone's happy, when they're anxious, when they're excited, this is how our brain matures. And if we don't get to see this in our, in our family, our friends, uh, our parents, whatever, we don't mature that part of our brain. And then we can't soothe other people. And then we can't soothe ourselves. 
And I think this is one of the reasons why therapy, I think, will become a little bit less effective in our kids because they haven't learned how to connect through the face. So, you know, it's really this unraveling kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. And she talks about in that book about how the more emotional words people know, the more emotionally intelligent they are, which is kind of a funny, a kind of a funny thing. So I thought like a great thing around the dinner table would be, you know, t- pick a word like with older kids, like teenagers, like what, what is angst? You know, what does angst mean? Is it anger? It's like, well, there's a part of that. And get them to describe it. You know, like every night, take a different emotion word. And around the dinner table, we discuss that. And, and that matures their social engagement system because we're not getting it now. So you asked me about what we can do for kids. Why is the social engagement skill important for anxiety? Because it, we ha- it's how we soothe ourselves. Ah. We learn how to connect with other people and we learn how to connect with ourselves not totally through the social engagement system, but the social engagement system plays a huge role, which is why loneliness is such a killer for people. Mm. Are breathing tools and cold water and time in nature and movement and all of these things that we use as adults to soothe the nervous system effective with kids as well? Yes. And that's a great question too, Aaron, because you know it's not the being in the walk with nature so much or the breathing so much because that will regulate your body to some extent. It's taking it the extra mile and finding the younger version of you and taking them on the journey, taking them on the walk, as corny as it sounds, because those things will help regulate your body. But to heal from anxiety, you need to connect with that younger wounded version of yourself. I call these passive and active strategies. Passive strategies are kind of like hypnosis, walks in nature, breathing. That stuff is fine. It will help regulate your body. But until you add that, where is this alarm in my body? That alarm is my younger self. How do I connect with that scared, frightened, younger self? That's an active way of healing. Everything else is just coping. With kids and this inner child work, when they are children themselves, do we, the adult, like they need that person that they are securely attached to, to be that compassionate voice, to be that caregiver for them. Is that correct? Like they're not doing the inner child work themselves at seven. Not so much. Although, although, you know, if you have a a kid who's 13 and their parents divorced at five, there's going to be a kid, a five-year-old inside of them. Now, whether, how, how verbal they are is going to determine some of that too, but getting into that feeling state. So it's like, well, how do people have an inner child when they're seven? Here's the other thing is like we are, are in a society that has more and more stress. And, and I think there's an energetic stress. And I think the kids coming into the world now are more energetically sensitive than the kids coming into the world in the 60s and 70s. So they, if, you, if you're born sensitive in an environment where you have attuned, attached, loving parents, you'll do fine. But if you're born sensitive into an environment where your parents work all the time or your parents had trauma, you know, the chances of you showing up with some sort of, you know, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, OCD, personality disorders are quite high because 80% of our brain development occurs in the first five years of our lives. So if we have secure attachment in the first five years, we're kind of buffered against stuff as we get older. But if we don't have that secure attachment in the first five years, you know, we're kind of sitting ducks for, you know, eating disorders, OCD, depression, anxiety, all this kind of stuff. We can remedy it, but it's a lot easier to give the child the attachment and connection they need while they're children 
So my point is, we can also get inherited family trauma, and this is being shown in more and more and more scientific stuff, Holocaust survivors, children of Holocaust survivors, all this kind of stuff, that we can inherit trauma from our ancestors. So there's that way that kids get traumatized. There's actual trauma, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, you know, abandonment, loss, all that kind of stuff. So we can do it in this life, and we can do it from our ancestors. And the other thing that I see with people is that people will come in and say, you know, I had a great childhood. They'll come in and see me because they have chronic anxiety and say, my childhood was great. You know, I always want to go into Dr. Evil. My childhood was typical. Summers <laughs> in Rangoon, lose <laughs> lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat tenements. But anyway, they would come in and say, my, my parents were great. So I would always, I always ask them the same question. Find out if before the age of five years old, your parents went on a holiday, your, your mother had to leave for some reason or whatever. And it's amazing how many people come back and say, oh yeah, my mother had to go in a hospital when I was a year and a half old and she was in there for like six weeks with complications. That's highly traumatizing for a kid. And it's often, it's often missed. It's often like, oh, well, you know, parents are great and that kind of thing. But there's often a, a separation. And Neufeld says that all anxiety is separation anxiety. And I add, yeah, and it's mostly separation from yourself. So if you can find that younger version of yourself, if you can join your mind and your body together, if you can join your adult self with your child self together, that's your best chance of healing anxiety and not just coping with it. Boom. Boom. I love that you're coming to the table as well with your background as a physician and a neuroscientist and then combining some of these practices that may get that label of woo-woo a little bit more. Yeah. I'm a huge believer that Eastern and Western practices, when we connect all of these things, I mean, at the end of the day, this yeah. whole conversation that we've had has been about connecting the mind, the body, our current self to our inner child, different practices from different communities. That's where the magic and the healing really occurs again and again. So there's tons of resources from this episode that we will leave down below in the show notes. As always, take what resonates, leave the rest behind. I'd love to leave you with one last question. If you could send an email that was going to land in the inbox of every single person's whatever in inbox <laughs> before yeah, you passed yeah. away, what would you say? I would say when you are feeling anxious, look into your body and when you look into your body and stay in your body, it keeps you out of your head. That's the only way to escape anxiety. So if you feel anxious, know that your mind is just going to make you worse. But it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to stop worrying and going into your, go into your body than it does just to keep that same old cycle going. You know, so it's basically when you're feeling anxious, get out of your head, get into your body. You know, and just st and just stop thinking temporarily. Easier said than done, but but that's basically my my best tip for anxiety. Oh, and one one last the other one is um, this is my daughter's favorite. It's like, am I safe in this moment? So in the middle of the day, middle of the night, whatever you're freaking out or whatever, ask yourself, am I safe in this moment? I might be worried about my dentist in you know half a day or whatever or my kids going to school that day, but in this moment, am I safe? Because we don't actually ground ourselves, we don't actually feel our bodies when we're feeling good, we only pay attention to our body when we're feeling alarmed or feeling bad. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Erin. 
Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.